welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On this week's episode, I welcome in Seth Godin. Many people know Seth as a great marketer, a keynote speaker, an author of 19 best-selling books, uh, the creator of the Alt-MBA, and the list goes on and on. And he has a new book out called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work which we spent a lot of time speaking about on this podcast because it aligns so much with the Just Get Started mission and getting outside your comfort zone, trying new things, and putting a different perspective on the world than maybe you had before. Um, I think this is a tremendous book. I had the opportunity to read it and uh, certainly would recommend to everyone out there um, that's listening in. So let's jump right into this interview. I'm jacked up uh, to have you guys listen in on this and take all the great advice um, and insight that Seth shares. So without further ado, my chat today with Seth Godin. Let's get it started. Seth, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to have you. Well, let's get started, man. It's good to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk through a lot of stuff. Obviously, you've done in your career. I think, you know, most folks listening in probably know who you are. Um, but really talk around, you know, this new book that you have out. I was so impressed because the Just Get Started movement, you know, what I'm trying to help folks with you know, try to find what they love, what they're, you know, great at and where they can make the biggest impact on the world. This book aligns really well because it's, it seems like it's about overcoming your fear. There's a lot of, you know, you have to put yourself out into the world to actually know if things are going to stick. And, and I want to talk a lot about those concepts with you. Uh, can I start here though, if you don't mind, is what, you've done so many projects over your career. Why was it important to do this project now? I think this project is a capstone in many ways because so many of us want to make things better. So many of us see the injustice, the dislocation, the challenges that we have in our culture and in our world. But too often we wait for somebody else to do it. Or some people who want to make an impact decide to do something that's easy to measure, like making money, as opposed to something that's hard to measure, like making a difference. And when I put those two things together... It seemed to me that we didn't need more tactics. We didn't need more shortcuts. We needed people to be able to look deep inside and realize that so much of this is up to them. And the book is called The Practice because my argument is if we learn to trust ourselves, we can sign up for the work of a professional, which is showing up to do what we said we were going to do. Well, one of the points you make in the book that I thought aligned really well was you talk about not having so much of that outcome that you're talking about. Hey, I want to make X dollars. I think you use the example, you probably share better, but about fly fishing. Right. About, and, I, and I really like that because, you know, I think back of, this is probably way off, but like I think back when I used to teach golf for a living and, and coaching students on, you know, trying to improve and put the time in, not thinking so much a score you're going to shoot in the future, but really around grasping the concepts and moving forward. So can you share a little bit about that? Because I thought that aligned really well with how folks should start thinking a little bit more. Yeah, and I'm guessing you were great as a golf instructor. Uh, Inner Golf by Timothy Galway is just such a classic book. And I've seen so many people in tennis and golf lose the thread early and forever because they're focused on whether it's a hole-in-one or the fairway or getting a serve in gets completely out of whack compared to the point. A lot of times when we're talking to people uh, about their dream or their passion, we ask the ridiculous question, if you knew you could not fail, what would you do? 
And that's a silly question because the answer is, I don't know, I'd become Superman, something that's impossible, right? Well, the real question that we should ask people is, if you knew you were going to fail, what would you do, right? So if you knew you were going to hit your golf shot into the rough, how would you swing? Even though you knew it wasn't good, at least you'd want to look good doing it, right? If you knew you were going to double fault on your serve, how would you want your form to be, even though you knew it wasn't going to work? And that leads to the story you're bringing up. My friends, Alan and Bill, who started Fast Company Magazine, uh, had a, a retreat, which they called in advance. And they had about uh, 80 of us there. And they got us up all one morning at 5 a.m. to go fly fishing in Montana or Wyoming or one of those places. And I'm sitting there a little bleary-eyed, and I say to the guide, do you think it would be possible to give me a fly with no hook on it? And he looked at me like I was an idiot, but he found one in his kit. And so all my high-performing peers and I went fly fishing, and they all had hooks. And so they were spending the whole day trying to catch a fish, even though they were going to throw it back. It's not like they were hungry. And I spent the whole time fly fishing, just learning to cast, just being present in the moment, because I couldn't catch a fish because I didn't have a hook. And if we can just figure out how to develop that practice, it turns out you catch more fish that way in the long run. Well, if, if I notice correctly, fact check me on this, but you've had this unique perspective on, I think, just work in general. If I remember correctly, when you got it, you never said, I'm going to go do this career, this job. You looked at things as projects, if, if I recall. I thought that when I read that, I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at things. So has, has this idea been around for a long time then for you um, in terms of this practice and kind of putting your work out there? Okay, so the project thing... Um, I thought was normal and it's not. And it certainly wasn't in 1979, but everyone has a life of projects. It's the rare exception of someone who has a job for 40 years doing the same thing every day. That the only thing your resume is, is a a map of all the projects you've had in the past. And inside a job, you don't do the same thing at that company all the time. You do this and you do this and you do this. These are all projects. And as a brand manager, which was my first and only real job, you do a project in the sense that you're going to launch a project with Arthur C. Clarke or with Michael Crichton. And then it's launched. And after it's launched, there's not a lot of work to be done on it because you launched it. And so each one of these things, whether it lasts an hour or for me, they tend to last a couple of years, they're projects. And you have to learn how to start them and you have to learn how to walk away from them and you have to learn how to finish them. Because that's the work. The work is not, I went to first grade and I stayed in school till I was in 12th grade and I got an A every year. We don't, adults don't live that life. Do you think that's part of, um, and and maybe it's a little different nowadays than it was even a number of years ago, but around the instant gratification. I think we see so many things online and it's like, oh man, this person's doing that. And we're so worried about what's going on that it's like, oh man, I'm I'm so far behind. Why even start? You know, well, social media has so many challenges. And one of the challenges is it's a beauty pageant. And the only people who are on display appear to be perfect because no one posts about their failures and no one posts the pictures of themselves when they just got out of bed. That what we've done is tapped into our status focused hierarchy and put it on display all in a vain attempt to get more friends, likes, and followers than our peers. 
as if that's going to make us happy. And so the people who run social media networks, number one, they know you're not the customer. You're the product. They're selling you to other people, to advertisers. And number two is they want you to be perpetually dissatisfied because that's what makes people come back. They don't want you to be sated and say, I'm done. I won Twitter. I don't have to go back anymore. What they want you to do is say, oh, I wonder if someone's saying something about me behind my back. I should go look. Well, so how do we help people? And really for myself, I'm probably looking in the mirror as well because I'm still challenged with this. Like I remember, actually, it's so funny, this podcast, I was going to start this in 2015. And for two years, I didn't start it until 2017 because of again, the fear of the unknown, what people were going to think, all of that type of stuff. And now at least I can speak from the perspective of, you know, as you call shipping the work, like actually putting it out there into the world. Now we look up, you know, two and a half, three years later, I'm getting a chance to chat with you on here, you know, like, you don't know what could happen, but you have to put yourself out there to even have that opportunity come up. Yeah, I mean, inside the podcasting fellowship, what we which, which is now called the podcasting seminar, what I point out to people is, Unless you were famous before you started, the first episode of your podcast had fewer than 50 listeners, right? It has to, because no one ever heard of you. But here you are with more than 100 episodes, and now you've touched the lives of thousands of people. But you only got that way by doing the first episode, right, which had almost no one. My first blog post, almost no one read it. My first 100 blog posts, I had fewer than 100 readers for every post, right? You, where else are you going to start? Starting where you are is the only option. Well, this goes back to something. I think I remember hearing this when you talked with uh, Tim Ferriss a couple of years ago around speaking, where I think you said the first hundred or ever uh, speaking engagements you had, you didn't get paid for, you did for free. And I think that's something that I hear a lot is, is folks are trying to, if they don't feel like they're going to make money at it right away, it's like, why do it? So can you speak about that a little bit more from the book of, of how it's so important to actually have that mission or impact behind it um, well, instead of just dollars? About, let's talk about learning and education first. You know, every single person who is physically able to walk figured out how to walk and figured out how to talk and figured out how to ride a bike. And in none of those cases did they get paid for it right away in the first month, maybe ever, but we do it anyway because we learned how, and it was worth learning. Education is all about rewards and compliance and grades and did I fit in and what was on the curriculum. But learning is what makes us human. And so if you approach something that you can see as a path forward as a learning opportunity, then maybe over time, you will create enough value. You will create something that is scarce enough that people will pay you for it. No promises, but that is the only way you ever get paid for anything. Which leads to my other rant, which is about passion. Uh, I think it's super dangerous to say to people, you should find your passion and follow it. I, I don't know very many people who have successfully done that. I think what you should do is do your work and then decide to be passionate about it. And that's different. And is that more just trying a lot of different things and seeing what you, because you may not know you like it or? Maybe, but, you know, so here's a quick, uh, slightly irrelevant aside. So close your eyes for a second and think of three logos whose design you admire, right? Three well-designed logos. Can you tell me what they are? 
Yeah, I mean, I get, I'm, I'm thinking more prominent, I guess, that I'm thinking of. Well, but yeah. you have lots of logos in your head. Pick right. three that you think are well-designed. Apple. Okay. Um, Nike came up to, to mind. Okay. Um, I didn't really have a third one. A lot I was so of people say Starbucks, right? Nobody picks the logo for a horrible failed business. Nobody picks the logo that's on the flag of an evil despot, right? We only pick logos from successful companies. Everyone I've ever done this with, that's what they pick. Right. Why? Are those logos better designed? Of course not. Those logos simply remind us of the company. Well, I think the same thing is true with passion. A lot of people, if they are lucky enough to do something that works, decide they're passionate about it. Not the other way around, right? So what a weird coincidence that so many people in the United States are passionate about football, but none of them are passionate about cricket. Why is that? It's because you can get rewarded for playing football with status in high school or money, et cetera. But no one wants to talk to you about playing cricket. It has nothing to do with cricket. It has to do with success. And so my argument is, instead of hiding by, well, I'm not passionate about that, just make a list of 50 things you could tolerate. And then go, go do one of those and do it well enough and often enough that you can become passionate about it, not the other way around. I've never thought of it like that. That's a, that's a good way to, uh, to think through it. What about someone, though, that, you know, works a full-time job? Because this is the excuse, right? A lot. I'm working a full-time job. I have kids. I, I can't put the time in. I'm trying to focus on this. What, what's the response to that, you know, to get them on their way? Yeah. Well, let me try a tactical response to begin with. Uh, do you have a Netflix account? Do you uh, use social media? And do you go to meetings at work that you could possibly get out of? And most people would say yes to all three. I don't watch television. I don't use social media and I don't go to meetings. So I have seven or eight hours that most people don't have every day. Now I'm unique because I'm the boss, but leaving that aside, the reason you want to watch Netflix is you're burned out from doing what other people tell you to do. And if you spend an hour and a half every evening instead doing something you wanted to do, that's plenty. That's plenty to start getting better at something. It's plenty to make a side hustle living at something. It's plenty to build community and connection. If you did that every day or four days a week, then two months from now, you would be smarter. You would be more trusted. You would be more connected because you were doing a thing, a work, a practice. And we forgot how to do that because we got brainwashed not to do it. You talk about the concept of brainwash. I, I brought this up a lot on the podcast, just around the society norm. You know, the way I was brought up, small town upstate New York, it's like, this is what you do. You go to college, you get a degree, you move, you know, start and move up the ranks. Can you speak a little bit about that and, and how to change the mindset of folks that maybe do have the, the brainwash mentality right now? You're not from Clarence, Oswego, Syracuse? Endicott, close. Endicott, oh. Yeah. All right, I'm from Williamsville, Amherst. Um, okay, so what is brainwashing? Brainwashing is a system in which authorities in power repeat something with punishments and rewards 
until we believe it's normal. And all of us have been brainwashed. If you ever wore a tie to a wedding, you didn't wear a tie to a wedding because it felt good. You did it because enough powers that be in the system established that that's the way things are around here. If you go to a wedding, you wear a tie. Well, we got mostly brainwashed about our culture and our work. And if it's working for you, don't worry about me. Just keep doing what you're doing because it's working. But if it's not working for you, it's worth taking a breath and saying, what things do I believe? Have I been taught to believe that other human beings in the world are out there doing that prove that I was wrong? And there's a million examples to this. You know, one of them is if you want to make it in the music business, you need a record label. And the record label picks you and it brings you to the recording studio. And then you're allowed to do that thing you said you wanted to do. And so you make all these compromises in the thing you love because you've been brainwashed into believing if you don't have a record deal, you're not a real musician. And then someone like Keller Williams shows up who gigs 200 days a year when the world isn't crazy and who gets to play the music he wants to play. Then someone like Amanda Palmer shows up and after leaving her record label, does a million dollar Kickstarter in, in 30 days, right? Because you don't need a record label. They just brainwashed you into believing you did. So what else is there out there that you believe that's getting in the way of your practice? What about um, fear? Fear, I mean, it's, it's obviously, ob it's obvious that that is a big player, right? I could speak on that myself of putting yourself out there. How, and maybe there's any practices you can give, but like, how do you overcome that mindset? Because you might have been for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, brainwash yourself um, just in terms yeah. of the fear of like actually doing something. So let's divide fear into two categories. Uh, there is the appropriate fear of not wanting to jump off a cliff of not having a fight with a werewolf. Uh, these are things that you should avoid because if you don't, you're gonna die. And we evolved for millions of years to develop those fear, fears. It's good that we have them. You know, high schoolers, teenagers momentarily suspend many of them and that's why the number one cause of death for teenagers is driving because we need the fear. Okay, but for the rest of us, the rest of the time, the fear is fake, it's make-believe. We are afraid of raising our hand, public speaking, telling the truth, seeing another person for who they truly are, being fully honest, on and on and on. We're afraid of all of those things. And so it triggers our werewolf fear, but it's different. And you can't make it go away. All you can do is acknowledge it. Oh, welcome back. You want to have a cup of tea? And when you welcome the fear in, acknowledging that it's a symptom that you're doing good work, it starts to lose its edge. Well, I think also, as you talked about, as you bring some of these concepts together, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the book that I thought was, I hadn't thought of it like this, is around creativity, that it can be learned versus what we've always thought. Like, you know, I always remember this growing up, my brother, he, I still remember this, like it was yesterday. He was like, I guess I was eight, he was like nine. And he, we were big Disney fans. So he took Simba, like a picture of him, and right next to it on a blank piece of paper, he made it look exactly the same. And that's what I always thought was creativity. Like he was an artist. Like he could, and I just didn't have that 
but you, but to your point is like, no, you, you actually, this is a skill you can develop, but to think a little bit differently than what we think of as creativity. Yeah. Well, first your brother wasn't an artist. He was a drawer. And there's a really big difference between art and drawing that if someone owns a copy machine or a scanner, they no longer need your brother to draw pictures of Simba because they can just print out perfect pictures of Simba all they want. What an artist does is something human, something for the first time, something that might not work, something interpretive. And that is a skill. You can learn, if you wanted to, to be a drawer. You could learn to be able, there's a great book called uh, Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain um, or the Right Side of the Brain, one or the other, um, that could teach you how to draw symbols just like your brother. But what you really want to learn is Who's it for? What's it for? What's the genre like? What does it mean to show up in this space and do something worthwhile? These are skills. And the beauty of skills is we can learn them. So is from, I guess from I'm thinking from a skill standpoint, then is, is it, do we just have to rethink of how we think about that? Because I, most of the time I'm assuming, and I'm probably thinking of some things that I've gone through is like, I don't think of it as a skill. I've thought of it as some like extraordinary you know, out of this world thing that I couldn't do. So I almost don't even go for it. Right. Well, here's the question. Has anyone ever learned to do that? If anyone has learned to do it, then you can too. Now, to compete at the highest level, you need talent as well. So Michael Jordan has a talent in addition to skill. I will never be able to dunk a basketball. I wasn't born able to do those things no matter how much I practice. But I could still play in a seven-foot basketball league and have fun, right? I just can't play in the NBA. Those are different things. So don't try to compete at the highest level in a place where you have no talent whatsoever. But anything you've chosen to do, my guess is you could improve your skill. And, and this also goes down to attitude, right? Well, attitude is a skill as well. And people get hung up on this. Could you be a little more honest? Could you be a little bit more insightful? Could you speak a little bit more clearly? Could you be a little more optimistic? Well, yeah, you could. If you listened to enough uh, self-improvement tapes and practiced enough, you could become more optimistic. And if you were optimistic long enough, you'd start to believe it. Yes, it's a skill. What else could it be? But since attitudes are skills, that's really good news because we can learn them. One of the other things you mentioned in the book, and actually this is, I'm going to sidestep to some other stuff. I'm hopeful I have you on here. So I'm like, I'm going to ask you about writing and go for it. What do you got? written enough books? Um, when you mentioned one thing you mentioned is around writer's block, there's no such thing as it. What, what did you mean by that? So if a plumber came to your house and said, Oh, I can't fix the faucet. I just don't feel like it. I'm not in the mood. Do you have any whiskey? You think that's absurd. There's no such thing as plumber's block. Plumbing is a job. Well, there is very much the, I am afraid I won't write very well block, but nobody gets typer's block. Nobody is incapable of writing poorly. So when you say I have writer's block, what you're really saying is I'm holding myself to a high standard. I'm afraid, and I can't write every word that well. So therefore I will write nothing. And what I'm saying to you is if you wrote 10,000 words, I guarantee you that 
something good would slip in there. You couldn't keep it from happening. Something good would slip in there. And after something good slips in, you keep that, throw out the rest, and now you're a writer. And the same way no one gets plumber's block or no one gets runner's block, writer's block is made-believe. How early in the writing process do you let others see your work? Well, in a case of a book like this, uh, November 2nd, when it comes out, uh, all criticism is not the same. There is a very small group of people who are super good at giving me the useful criticism I need. I treasure those people. There aren't very many of them. They get to read my work in advance because they know that they're a professional and they can help me. Nobody else gets to read it because whatever they said wouldn't help. If they loved it, it wouldn't help. And if they hated it, it wouldn't help because they're not good at giving the appropriate kind of criticism to make things better. Yeah, I was hoping that was going to be your answer because, you know, with the, some of the children's books and, and, and this other, I'm writing more of a full-length book, and that was, I, I'm, always, I'm always wondering, like, do I give it to folks to not criticize, but look at, read, you know, and give their feedback? Or I'm just like, no, this is what I want to put out. Well, it Unless depends, it's for editing purposes. Like, right, it depends on the who's it for. If I was writing and I hadn't had a lot of experience writing kids' books for four-year-olds, I would spend a lot of time at kindergarten. I would spend a lot of time watching kids who didn't know it was my book interacting with my book. Because the who's it for might be a kid. On the other hand, if I wanted to sell a lot of copies, I would spend a lot of time at Barnes & Noble when it reopens, watching how people go and buy kids' books. And I would put mock-ups in my book on the shelf and watch what they do. I've, done, I've been doing that for years and years. I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do it all the time. I could spend three, four hours in the business section of Barnes & Noble watching. And someone would pick up a book of mine and put it back or pick up somebody else's book. And I'd walk over and I'd say, why did you pick this book instead of that? And you'd talk to them. And that, they don't know the answer. But if you listen to enough people guess, then some of it starts to make sense. You would actually sit there and just watch folks pick up books? How can you That's not? Kind of- that's awesome. I like it. I'm curious about this, right? And if, you, uh, if you're going to make a bridge, I think it's really important to watch cars driving over bridges. And engineers do such good work. When was the last time you heard of a bridge falling down? Bridges don't fall down because engineers know exactly who the bridge is for and who it's not. And they understand from looking at people using bridges how people use bridges. And so getting really comfortable with the genre in which you work is essential if you want to be a professional. I have to ask, because I'm very curious, were people more shocked that you like asked them the question about the books or that you were actually the one when they picked up your book that asked them about the book? All right, so it's important to understand, what do I mean when I talk about the smallest viable audience? Your, your podcast is in the top 50,000 of all podcasts. And that means you probably have tens of thousands of regular listeners. That's all you need, right? If you could add one zero to it and you have hundreds of thousands of regular listeners, you'd be in the top 50 in your category. There's 7 billion people on earth. You only need 200,000 to be a home run. Almost no one has ever listened to this podcast. Well, the same thing's true for me. Almost everywhere I go, no one has any idea who I am, which is fine. 
I can stand in the business section of Barnes and Noble all day. No one knows who I am. Fine. I like it like that. And so when I walk up to somebody in the business section and they've put my book down and bought something else, they're like, oh my God, it's a, they're just sort of, who are you? And we move quickly move past that because the question isn't about me, it's about them. And you want to ask appropriately open-ended questions, not questions like, why did you do that? But questions like, how does this book compare to that book? And then you will start to hear glimmers of truth from people. Do you think there's a creative way now that, again, who knows when Barnes & Noble is going to open again and, and if we are in a different world, do you think there's a creative way that your you know, testing out there could be done in more of a virtual way? Yeah, so there's this great book called Rocket Surgery. And what the author uh, explains in great detail is how to use Zoom plus a few other tools to get people to review your website. And it works on things way more uh, varied than just websites. But basically, it's a whole method of you recruit people for 10 bucks on Craigslist. You set them up to use screen sharing and to go visit your website. And then you do not talk to them other than to prompt them with very simple questions. Something like, all right, on this website, I want you to talk as you go about uh, ordering a, a wheel of cheese. Uh, and you're watching how they're moving their mouths. Oh, no, I, I and, and, and if you do that for 10 people, you suddenly realize how poorly designed your website is because they're not reading your mind. They're only reading their mind. Well, we can do the same thing with, I don't know, book covers or the names of podcasts. We can challenge some people in the right group and say, here are five podcasts. You get to listen to anyone you want. Which one do you want to listen to? And they're picking just based on the six words and a little image. Oh, why did you pick that one? What do you think this podcast is about? And you ask them, and these kinds of conversations aren't, please criticize me. These are conversations of help me read your mind. From a writing standpoint, if we went back to that for a minute, is there any way that you've found works? Maybe it's just for you, but maybe found for others to actually get into the writing process. Is it outlining? Is it you know, word maps, like what, how, how do you get the writing process started for a new book? I, so I write like I talk and that has paid off enormously, but it meant I had to spend a lot of time working on how I talk. If you can figure out how to talk more clearly in a more organized way, then everything else gets easier because then you can just write like you talk. If you need to adopt a totally different voice and sound like some sort of fancy college professor or some sort of impenetrable econ economist, then writing can get really hard because you don't even know what you're supposed to sound like. But I can tell you, people have sent me blog posts that I wrote seven years ago, and I don't remember the blog post, but I remember that it sounds like me. And so deciding to sound like something is the hardest part. Have you, has your voice, quote unquote, right, changed over the years? Like obviously have you improved like is there certain things you've worked on or practices that you picked out early on and maybe it was in your early speaking um, yeah. that you're like oh my god i gotta stop saying that yeah there's a lot of things trivial and big the trivial i used to use the word just all the time one book i used it 189 times more than once a page thanks to search and replace it went down to four but it made me very aware of certain words that I was using to hold space. But I'm more interested in the fact that 
I try not to, I have no clue how any of this works. I don't know the answer to many questions. So I don't want to sound like I'm scolding people or sound like I'm certain. And I think I've gotten a little bit better at that. What's the big takeaway then from, from the new book? What are you hopeful that, that people like the big idea they get when they pick it up and read it? Well, again, I wrote a book for very few people here. If it gets read by 100,000 people, that will be more than I was hoping for. Uh, it is a book to help people trust themselves. Because if you can't trust that voice in your head, if you can't trust yourself to do this work, who can you trust? And what we need urgently is trustworthy, caring, generous people who can show up with an assertion and say, here, I made this. If we can figure out how to do that more, then I'm optimistic about where we go as a world. All right, I wanna, let's end on this note. Um, I'm probably gonna kick myself for, uh, for, there's probably like 10 questions I'm gonna wanna ask and I'm gonna think about them afterwards. But the, uh, I always like to ask this question in the podcast. I want you to reflect back. So you gotta go back to your 18 year old self, okay? Mm-hmm. And the, the fun part of it is you only have a post-it note. So you have a very small piece of paper that you could write on. Um, and you got to give advice to yourself at that moment in time, 18-year-old, to help them on the journey a little bit easier than you had it. What, what would you say? Well, I don't want it to be easier. And I don't want myself to avoid the failures. And I've had so many because then I wouldn't be me. And I am happy Fair. that I'm me. Uh, my post-it would have two sides. On one side, it would say, am I stalling? And on the other side, it would say, um, everything's going to be okay. The, that's really good. The am I stalling? Is that something, do you say that to yourself often? Do you have it written on a mirror somewhere? Like, is that I have something? I've written on this piece of wood that I'm holding in my hand. Right oh, here. so you have that right in front of you all the time. Okay. That's pretty cool. Oh man. So this is, this is a lot of fun. I, I certainly appreciate you coming on and, um, God, sharing a lot of your wisdom. I know you've been doing stuff for a lot of years and obviously you do have a big following out there. So I certainly appreciate you taking some time out for this, uh, this podcast and uh, sharing this, uh, this great book you've written. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing the podcast. The first hundred are the hardest. Now you're on your way, sir. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview and thanks again for stopping by. Um, if you want to connect further, please head over to my website, brianondraco.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O.com, as well as connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Brian Andraco, or search me on LinkedIn, just Brian Andraco. Um, I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.